Heavenly Father, the psalmist writes that there's one thing that we ought to ask and one thing that we seek, and that is to dwell in your house, Lord, to gaze upon your beauty and to worship at your feet. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we seek to understand how to read it, how to understand what you've revealed about yourself, our fervor, our zeal, our desire is to know and behold you. And so we ask that you would give us this, um, this heart, this focus, this zeal, this oneness of desire to behold you. And we ask for your help in these things this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our study of understanding how to read and properly interpret Scripture, we've been emphasizing this idea that there is one meaning in the text, and that meaning is defined by the author. The author's meaning was written down. It was communicated in written words, and these words are to be rightly understood in their context. Therefore, for us to really understand what the author is communicating through his words, the key to unlocking that is going to be the context of the words. The words themselves are written in a context, and so context is key to unlocking the author's meaning. So if we are aiming to really accomplish this task, for us to hit the target, we must aim at understanding, therefore, the context. So there's this funny illustration here on the board that's showing an arrow. And if we are seeking to actually accomplish the goal of understanding the author's original intent, their meaning, we need to be aiming at the context. The context is going to clue us in on how to actually arrive at the target. So our our aim to understand the immediate and original context of a passage is how we are actually going to arrive at a correct meaning which the author intended. And so the importance of context is really why we're transitioning to talk today about biblical genres. One of the most important ways we honor the context of the original author is by observing the biblical genre the author was writing in. The Bible, as we know, is made up of several books and contains many different writing styles. The Bible could be understood even as a library of literature. We must properly recognize, then, the literary categories of each passage we read if we are going to find the author's intended meaning. Categories of literature have different features that actually aid us in understanding the message that's being conveyed. If we are misunderstanding a passage of Scripture's genre, the rest of the passage is going to be blurry and we're going to actually miss or have a flawed understanding of what the author intended to communicate but rather knowing the genre that the author intentionally wrote and chose to write in will greatly help us and aid us in understanding what they were meaning to communicate. But broadly, uh, we need to understand scripture as its unique genre. It's the genre of revelation, and we've mentioned this in this class before, but it's worth mentioning again as we talk about these subcategories in which authors of scripture wrote. But God's word is his revelation, his proclamation of himself. He desires to be made known, but we know that it is sourced in God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. This is God's word. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men, rather, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 also speaks to this truth by saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So recognizing that God's word as a whole is God's revelation of himself. It's a message from the creator to his creation about who he is and how we are to rightly live with him. And what this means for the student of scripture is that if we are not learning more about God as we read his word, then we are definitely going to be missing the point. It's meant to reveal God. So within scripture, there are different genres by which God has chosen to reveal himself. And a genre is really just um, different categories or types of literature and biblical genres, specifically ones that we find in the Bible. And there's probably three primary headers of scripture in regards to genre that we want to cover in this class. There's narrative, which speaks to a text really that makes its point primarily by telling a story. There's poetry, which is a text that uh, where normal language is often modified to intensify its impact. And disclosure, a text that uh, presents a logical sequence of ideas in order to make its point. So for us as readers of scripture, we ought to strive to understand the genre so that we can actually be on the same page as the author regarding their intent and their meaning that they're trying to communicate. So this morning we're going to dive into specifically the biblical genre of narrative. We want to understand biblical narrative. And really this is, one of the, this is the largest category um, of genre in scripture. Um, Bible as a whole is a story. But I think when we come to biblical narrative, we tend to make an error in our thinking. So one is that we think of it strictly as history. So if we are to give most of the weight to our understanding of biblical narrative as just historical or merely historical information, then we tend to approach the text in an unhealthy, weighted way. People often make the mistake of viewing narrative portions of scripture as merely a historical book like you would read a history textbook. But the narrative in scripture is more than just historical data. If we're reading through scripture and all we're getting are dates and times and places just to strictly get information about history, and there's nothing more than that, then we're actually lacking in our understanding of the genre of biblical narrative. But conversely, we can also make the mistake of seeking to see it as not historical and to the exclusion of history, just a theological text. And we've seen this throughout history where people will disregard any historical facts or any dates or any information, and that's just a framework that can be thrown away. And rather, we're to allegorize these, these stories and to say that they're not actually information that's actually happened in the past, but simply we're supposed to read out a, a, a theological meaning. We are to disregard the details and rather insert our own truths that we see that even if maybe consistent with the truth of scripture, aren't necessarily what the story details were meaning to indicate, but that doesn't really pertain. And so we can fall off the horse in either of these ways where we think it's just historical or we disregard the history. An example of disregarding the history, maybe you've heard sermons online or on YouTube about the story of David and Goliath. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll tell the story, but the, the history and the details don't matter really at all. And they just say, Goliath is representing sin, and the stone represents your faith, and you just need to sling your faith to defeat sin in your life. 
And what they're doing in that moment is they're saying there's no real historical value or historical truth in this text. It's simply something that you can just insert biblical truth into, and it's a framework for us to understand theology or how we're supposed to live in relation to God. But rather, for us to rightly understand biblical narrative, we need to make sure that we're valuing both the history and the theology that is present within the text. Biblical narrative is not intended to be merely objective reports about past events, nor is the historical story an irrelevant framework to be discarded through allegory. Biblical narrative rather weaves together the truths of what has happened to reveal the God who has made those things happen. Narrative is tying together both the history and the theology together. It weaves them together for us to understand and point us to this God who is sovereign over all of history. And a story is told really to convey a singular message through people and problems and situations. And stories are really helpful for us because we relate to it almost immediately. We, we think in real life, and when a real-life story is told, we're, we're encaptured or enraptured into the narrative. But I think it's important for us to really be able to identify um, what are some features for biblical narrative. The, the Bible, as an, as an entity in itself, um, is really one big, great story. It tells the story of God's plan of redemptive history from start all the way to its glorious finish. And it's through narrative of scripture that we find out these, these powerful and impactful truths for ourselves. We also recognize that where we came from, how sinful we are. We recognize who our Savior is and how we should live and even our final destiny and what that will be. This is all revealed to us through the narrative of scripture. And we learn and grasp concepts through stories extremely well. It relates, and we, we can relate to, this world in which we live. But understanding the, the genre of narrative is really important for us as students of God's word so we can intentionally discover the details that the writer included in effort to find their actual intended purpose, the, excuse me, the message and meaning with which they're writing for. So there's really three primary features um, that really help us to understand as we're studying through biblical narrative. And if I'm going to put this in the framework of what we've been teaching about inductive Bible study is this was really helpful in your observation steps of scripture. So as you're coming to scripture, it's helpful to think through these three categories when you're reading through a narrative to say, this gives me the tool that I need to just simply place. I need to dig deeper into these categories as I'm observing these parts of the text. So the first one would be the setting. The setting really is where we answer the question when and where. It's the environment in which the action takes place. And oftentimes in scripture, the biblical authors of narrative are seeking to set the stage, so to speak. And those details are important for us in seeking to understand what they're communicating. Secondly, we would observe that there's also characters that are present in biblical narrative. So these are um, those who are actually participants in the action of the story. And it seeks to answer the question, who? So when we're going through our observation steps, who is involved in this text? Who are all the characters and how do I identify them rightly? And then thirdly would be the plot. In a biblical narrative, there is going to be a plot. And that really helps us answer the question, what? What is happening in this story? How did it actually end up this way? And this is really a series of events, plot is a series of events, that are linked together 
in order to tell the story. So whenever we're reading narrative, we ought to look for how these elements are present by the author, how he presents them, what are the details involved, and even asking questions, why? Why did they present these details? Why was this important? So the first one we're going to look at this morning is uh, under the biblical narrative features is number one, is setting. So the setting is really one of the ingredients of any story that is um, really helpful for us in picturing what is going on. So the surrounding stage is really being set where the actions will take place. That's what setting does. And the biblical authors of narrative are seeking to inform the reader's understanding of the story by way of describing this, this scene, this picture of where it all takes place. As the readers, uh, we would do well to pay attention to what the author chooses to tell us and even observe the way in which it is described. All these details are meant to clue the reader, us, into the overall impact and message intended by the author. And there's really two primary elements to establish a setting, and the setting is is typically set by both place and time. First, we're going to talk about place. So place for us often just refers to a location. You know, I'm going home, or I'm going to the church, or I'm going to Dylan's. I'm just going to a location. But oftentimes we need to remember that locations can even um, have, have a sort of uh, reputation, so to speak. They have um, a, a, a meaning that's encapsulated in the location. So if I was to just say Las Vegas, your mind is already indicated there's more information behind that location than just Las Vegas as a destination. And it would be the same in Scripture. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah had a reputation in the town, according to Scripture. So when it's referenced as a town, as a location, as a place, there's information that the author is intending the audience to understand when referencing that place. And oftentimes we find that in Scripture. But if we're not clued into what that reputation is, we ought to do more study to say there's a town that's specifically mentioned in this story And I can glaze over it and not really understand, but I ought to do more digging because they mentioned it for a purpose. If we are to rightly think about the setting um, that's drawn for us by the author, we need to seek to understand the impact it would have had on the original audience, what they would have understood as that was being communicated. And there's beautiful pictures that are set in scripture that really are meant to captivate and intensify the event. So sometimes scripture talks about, for example, um, Pharaoh's magnificent courtroom in Egypt or the desert in Sinai, the desert of Sinai, excuse me. And even when David is hiding out in a cave or um, when Ruth talks about laying on the threshing floor in the dark, these are scenes that may be distinct from our own experiences, but we need to seek to understand what the author is seeking to set in the place that is part of the setting. There can be a lot of historical context for why an author mentions a location, and we would do well to investigate that in our study and to observe that this is not an irrelevant detail or simply um, a data point of location, but we ought to do more study to investigate why they mentioned this place. And one way you can do this is through a Bible concordance. Uh, A concordance seeks to organize the information regarding even specific locations and helps us to understand more about those details. Um, You can do it through a search history of Scripture and just searching this location that came up in your text. And are there historical events that Scripture records that happened that the audience originally would understand about that place? 
and to go look and study in those texts to say, these are events that have taken place here, and how does that um, impact um, this reference that the author makes? But not only does a setting contain a place, it also often contains um, a time, a time stamp. So time is really seeking to set um, um, when, answer the question, when a story actually takes place. So similar to the aspect of place, um, the time is communicated to the, by the author to even convey sometimes a mood. What is the, the setting in which these events are taking place? What was going on in the world at that time that this event um, happens and takes place? So this could be indicated through um, them time stamping through not just a year, um, but also could be a big event. There's a big event that happens and they say, at this time when this happened, this and this happened. So sometimes they'll mention famines. That's, that's an indicator of what's going on in the culture at that time that this event took place. And that should help us to understand as the, as the reader. Or they'll mention harvest season. These other big events for them that are happening that are meant to be part of the story that we sometimes overlook. Oftentimes the, the setting, especially in the Old Testament, is set by referencing a king. That would be an indicator um, to the original audience of a context that likely is not immediate or apparent to us. But for those of you that have lived through several presidents, you could list off presidential events that have happened, um, and that would set a mood or a time, or even big events. Like if I mentioned 9-11, that's a big event, and you would understand the cultural moment that was going on at that time. But for us, when we read scripture, we don't always catch that. And for example, um, you can think of a, a text we often are familiar with, which is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, he actually is about to tell us about this throne room event where the prophet is before God in his throne room. And, and, but in leading into that event, he actually says the phrase, in the year that the king Uzziah died. And he, he does this as a timestamp for us to understand, but we skip over that oftentimes because we're not in the middle of that story and don't understand it, and we're seeking to really jump into the event that happens to Isaiah. But he mentions this as an important detail, and so it would be good for us in our study to say, I may not know all the details about this King Uzziah or why he even died. And so I should go then and look at cross-references and go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and look at the story of Uzziah to make sure I'm getting the, the context of this important timestamp that Isaiah thought was important enough to mention for this event that then he then takes place. And you can go back and look at the story of King Uzziah and how he was um, a king for multiple decades and actually built up the kingdom of Israel and its defenses, but he became proud. And he was in the temple right outside um, the, the Holy of Holies, holding the incense, trying to act like a priest. And that is the point where God actually struck him with leprosy, and that led eventually to his death. So there's this humbling moment where God is dealing with even the king of his, of his people, and he strikes him and kills him eventually with this, with this leprosy. And it all happens in this temple event. And then Isaiah jumps into this context to say, this is where the people are experiencing this, and this is what I'm being called and commissioned to do, is to speak to these people who, who just had their king struck by the God who leads this nation. It's a big deal to understand the timing and the setting that's set by the author. And so it's good for us to not skip over these details, even if at first we don't know it immediately, but the original audience would have. So biblical narrative also 
is written down in, um, in a certain order. And so I think in regards to timing, sometimes we expect everything to be chronological, right? We, we think that way. We're very much in order. We like it organized in regards to our understanding of a story. But oftentimes the authors of scripture are not necessarily aiming to just give a, um, a bibliography or a historical timeline, but they're seeking to communicate, again, not just history, but also theology, and they're weaving it together to communicate important truths. And so depending on the author's purpose, they sometimes put events in different orders, and it actually aids them in helping us as the reader to understand um, these events and what they're aiming to communicate. So um, some tools that authors will use in regards to the time of how they present these events in narrative is sometimes they'll use foreshadowing. So foreshadowing is where they look forward in time to inform the present narrative. So they, they kind of snap forward to tell you something that happened after this event to give light to their actual purpose for writing. An example of this is when um, in the Gospel of John, which is um, gospel narrative in the New Testament, And in John chapter 2, starting in verse 19, he writes, Jesus answered them um, about um, this event when he came in and he drove out um, all the the money changers and everybody in the temple who was seeking to really uh, promote themselves rather than worship God. And he he, um, drives them all out and all the um, Pharisees, rather, were... Uh, disgruntled and and trying to ask him questions and interrogate his actions. And he answered them and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But it says in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the narrator is speaking here to help us understand. And then he snaps forward in verse 22, he says, when therefore he, ra- he was raised from the dead, his disciples in the future remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So why does John snap forward to give us information about this scene? Well, when you look at the purpose with which John is writing in chapter 20, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so Here in chapter 2, he's already emphasizing the point of his entire letter by saying, later they understood and believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So he's bringing up this main idea and using the tool of foreshadowing, snapping forward to something that happened to inform that event, so that we're getting the main point of why he's including this story. Not only can you flash flash forward, or um, fast forward rather with foreshadowing, but you can flash back. So there's flashbacks. Sometimes the author will look back in time to inform the present narrative. And we ought to ask, why did they take this time jump in the middle of this narrative to bring up this event? It's not just like they just had a random idea and decided to throw it in there, but they actually are intending to use that as a tool for us to understand the present story. But sometimes there is the blessing of just a chronological succession um, maybe not always perfect, but they're aiding, to, aiding us in, in really, um, for example, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke. That would be a great example where he says, I'm, try, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, to give you an orderly account of the events that have happened. And he's wanting to, to really lay out for him the details in writing to a Greek audience, um, a, a mostly chronological um, secession of the events that happened uh, through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So when studying narrative, we ought to always look in the story for the setting. We need to look for the place and the time details that are included by the author. 
And this will help as we seek to identify the different sections of the story as well and be able to zoom in and out on each scene as they fit together as intended by the author. So when an author changes place or changes time, that often gives us a section with which we can study this is part of the story and then he includes this next and then this next section. But we need to zoom out of each of those and say, how is he connecting these together? And we ought to always assume in our study that every detail about the setting is important and seek to investigate them in our aid of understanding the text. But stories are not only shared through a setting, but the story is also shared through and involves characters. Narratives are um, developed by the interaction of the two um, factors of both characters and plot. Characters are those who really carry out the action and move the plot forward. So often the meaning being conveyed by the author is tied to the behavior of one or more characters in a biblical narrative. But as we know from life, people are complicated. And sometimes we're not even provided all the details that we would like to know about certain characters. But we ought to give a focused attention on the details that are provided by the author. The biblical story writers are seeking to shape our understanding as readers of the character. And they're presenting pertinent and true details about them. So the authors are, are telling us what is necessary to know about the people involved to communicate not just the history, but also the theology about who God is and what he is accomplishing through history. So to give you um, some of these details, we're, we're really can divide it up into two sections. One would be the identity of these characters. Sometimes you'll get um, origin details or there's comments and actions that are included in the narrative. So some of these details that you'll get um, and you'll find in your reading through scripture is you'll get titles or statuses of characters. You'll find out that they're a king or they're a widow or they're rich or they're old. The characters will also be defined sometimes by a profession. They're a shepherd or a prophet or a tax collector or even sometimes mentioned as a prostitute. And that's important for those details are helpful for us in understanding how the character should be viewed by the reader. They will also tell us um, sometimes the character's nationality and tribe, like they're a Philistine or a Samaritan or they're of the tribe, uh, they're a Levite or a Benjamite. Benjaminite. Um, and they will tell us about the physical traits. They're either beautiful or they, have, they are lame in some way or um, they're ruddy or a leper or long-haired. These details are important and they tell characters um, about their personal traits. Maybe they're wise or they're foolish, they're meek or they're cunning or they're listed as righteous in scripture. And this is helpful for us in understanding and identifying these characters. But how these characteristics are communicated can be through different ways. Sometimes it's a narrator comment. And those are really helpful for us in understanding a story because the narrator enters into the story to give us a detail to help us understand what they're seeking to communicate. And it doesn't happen um, super frequently, but it is very helpful for us as readers. So sometimes a narrator comments about the identity of a character. Sometimes um, there's other characters that comment on the main character or, or a side character. And when it's a reliable character making a statement about somebody else, that's really helpful for us too. Jesus makes comments about his disciples and that informs our understanding of how we should view this entourage that's traveling with him. 
And also we can understand that there's individual statements. So a lot of times the narratives will include in a story statements made by the character themselves that reveal either the heart of the character or the intentions and the actions and abilities of the character. Um, and that's intended for us to understand who this character is and what they're aiming to accomplish and what is happening in the plot. Uh, sometimes characters are identified through contrast. Um, you can think about Jacob and Esau. There's in scripture this high contrast between these two um, twin brothers even in regards to how their relationship is to God and to each other, even just physically. They're very, very different, and the author is meaning to draw out this contrast for us as the reader to see this distinction. And sometimes it's not even two characters. You can think about Paul in the New Testament, who was Saul. There's this huge change, and we're supposed to see this big before and after picture of this radical transformation, and that's supposed to draw our attention into the text to say, there must be something big that's happened here. What is it that God has done? And we find out that story of Paul's transformation and the change. But not only identity, I think in, um, in biblical narrative, it's helpful for us to think through a framework of roles. There are roles that characters play in a story. And these are uh, true even in the, de the depiction of biblical narrative. You can find a protagonist, which is really a central character the narrator sort of spotlights and follows throughout the plot. There's also an antagonist, which is the, the opposing main character of the protagonist. They're in opposition, there's a tension that comes up in the plot. And there's also agents, which are really secondary characters um, who ne don't necessarily have a lot of details about them, but they do perform pertinent and necessary actions to make the plot move forward. And it's helpful, again, in observation to say, how do I categorize these details so that I can zoom in on the important ones um, and, and identify them correctly to see how it all fits together and what the author is intending to communicate. So as we dig further into both the identity of the characters and their roles, um, we're, it's helping us and aiding us to understand what the author is simply um, meaning to portray through this narrative. It gives us a clear understanding of the text. But lastly, we're going to mention um, the plot. So not only is there a setting in a story, not only are there characters, but there's also a plot. And this is really the, the organizing structure that ties the narrative together. It's the storyline. And once the setting and characters are set, there is um, some sort of uh, conflict um, once the scene starts that arises out of the setting with the characters. And then it intensifies eventually until its climax of this sort of do or die moment, which eventually results in a conclusion that can either be good or bad. Uh, but there eventually comes to an ending. And the conclusion really in, in a narrative is one of the key factors in careful study of biblical narrative. Uh, at the conclusion of the story, we ought to be asking questions such as, what changes have taken place from the start of this story to the end? What has transferred? What is, what is different? We also could ask, uh, what, is the main, what is the main character? How have they changed? What is, what is different from the main character at the beginning to now? And we also should ask, how has God been revealed through these events? This started at a certain place, and now it's here. How have we seen God at work in the midst of this plot and this narrative? And, that, and at the conclusion, that helps us and aids us in understanding to ask those sort of questions. But the plot also has the feature that ties, into, ties together um, individual episodes, you could call them, into the larger coherent story. If you think about, um, for example, Abraham, 
He is the primary protagonist in Genesis 12 through 25, where we encounter uh, really several short scenes about his life. Um, Through Genesis 12 through 25, we see that Abraham receives the promise from God that he he goes to Egypt and he, he rescues even his nephew Lot through that section. And, and he even sends Hagar away after um, the, the story of taking her as um, a wife to have a child um, instead of waiting on God's promise. So all these stories are, are put, and as the setting changed, you see all these episodes, but you actually ought to zoom out and say, Abraham's been the main character throughout all of these chapters. And I need to read them not as just segmented, but see what is, what is it that the author is intending to communicate through the life of Abraham. Because there's a larger plot being told through Abraham's life about really how God is keeping his promise to Abraham despite his lack, oh, despite his sinfulness, despite his, his own failings. God is unconditionally keeping his promise to Abraham. And when we really tie these stories together, we see that seed is popping up in every single story. And that helps us to identify the main idea that that the author is intending to communicate in in the specific order in which they tell these episodes. So zooming out will often help you to identify the truths that the authors are seeking to convey by putting the stories even right next to each other. This is a way that we actually can honor the context in which the original author wrote. As we study individual scenes, we must seek to understand why the author knit them together in a specific order. And this is really helpful as we identify these episodes or these these stories. How we do that is through comparing and contrasting. So these stories will help us uh, by comparing them to provide insight regarding both the smaller and the larger themes that are being conveyed throughout the entire book. If you think also of the story of Joseph, this captivating story of a young brother who's, um, who's hated by his older brothers and he is thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery in Egypt. And all of that is really captured in the first chapter of his story in Genesis 37. You see his dreams that he's hated, that he's sold into slavery. But then the author takes a big shift. I mean, you're, you're captured in the story and you want to understand why Joseph is being treated this way and, and what's going on. And then in Genesis 38, you see this story about Judah, his older brother, um, and his immorality with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and this, this um, sexual infidelity that goes on. And you're like, what does that have to do with this like great story you started to tell with Joseph. And then in chapter 39, it jumps back into Joseph's story in Egypt and what happens. But what's helpful is to compare and contrast, why did Moses write this story in this section? And what you find out actually through, through putting these next to each other and laying them out at a zoomed out view is you find that Judah's story of immorality with Tamar is meant to contrast right after in Genesis 39, Joseph's moral purity in Potiphar's house. So not only am I finding more about Judah and his character and what role he's going to play later because he's humbled through this event, but he's also including it and inserting it here right before Joseph's moral integrity where he doesn't lie with Potiphar's wife and he flees sexual immorality saying, how can I do this sin against God? And for us as a reader, as we continue reading through bigger sections of scripture, you'll see these contrasts of Moses is trying to point out, even though Joseph does what is right in God's eyes, he's still being thrown then into prison for doing what's right. There must be something going on here that's much bigger 
than just, um, than just um, bad stuff's happening to Joseph. And that's supposed to help clue us in as a reader to see this compare and contrast and to ask those sort of questions, even in gospel narrative, where a lot of times we segment out these stories. I think of my own childhood growing up in the church and we, we tell these in segmented stories and we kind of pick and choose these highlights of really powerful, impactful narratives. Um, but as we grow up in reading of God's word, we can tend to do the same and say, ah, I don't know, this story just isn't really doing it for me. I'm gonna go to this next story and keep reading. But we need to take time to analyze how the authors of scripture knit these together and how they relate to help us understand the main idea that they're seeking to communicate. So I think that's, that's really one of the most helpful tools in regards to um, the plot and even just in general biblical narrative to really take time to look into the details and make these observations and being diligent to focus to say, why did the author write it this way? Why did they present these details? Why did they mention this time and this place? Why did they identify the characters in this way with these details? Why is it that they put these stories next to each other? And what is that meant to draw out, in my gaze as the reader, as their main meaning, the main point they want to communicate through both the theology and the history of what God has been doing through redemptive history? So the goal of biblical narrative, ultimately, is to reveal who God is and to convince readers of a right way of thinking and how to respond to him. But I hope that these details don't drown you out in thinking, man, I never have time to do that. It's impossible. It's too much work. But I want you to understand this is just a framework that's supposed to help you in an organized way observe and capture more of these details and to ask the Spirit to really help you to understand his written word as he meant to communicate it, because he will. Narrative is really a dynamic form of literature and um, And looking into these features, I hope it will only enhance your enjoyment and your understanding of who God is as he's revealed himself. This is God's revelation in his word, and he wants us to understand his truth as we pursue reading them in the context and how they were written and woven together for us to clearly see. These features are are really simply an organizational tool that will help you dive deeper into your observations This is not meant to be an interpretive scheme or schematic, but rather a framework to approach simply noticing the details already provided by the author. I hope you'll be encouraged in your study of God's word to understand and to look to see more. I hope you'll come back next week. We're gonna continue um, in our class of studying the Bible. Um, We're gonna continue in biblical genres and hopefully tackle the rest of those, and we'll be done here in the next couple weeks. Uh, But with that, I'll dismiss you, and we'll be back here at uh, 1030 for worship together. Thank you.